I'm Frank Davis, and you're listening to A Yank on the Footy. to episode number 97 of A Yank on the Footy. I'm Craig Wessels from Sandusky, Ohio, and I am glad that you're listening. Don't forget that you can find anything related to the podcast on the new website at yankonthefooty.com. I hope you'll consider checking that out. You can leave a voicemail there. You can share your views that way. You can also uh, leave a question for me there if you'd like me to go ahead and answer that. You can get signed up on the email list as well. I would love it if you would go ahead and consider doing that as well. A couple of days ago, folks, I shared a listener survey with my subscribers. I sent it out to them in an email, and I've heard back from about a dozen people so far, as well as sharing it out on social media. And if you're somebody who listens to this show regularly or even occasionally, I'd love to hear your thoughts as I'm getting ready to embark on the second 100 episodes of the show. I'd I'd love to get your thoughts about what you think's going well, what I could do differently, what you would like to see happen. And uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for the episode, so hopefully you'll take a couple seconds and fill it out. It's just five or six little yes or no questions and little short responses, just what you're thinking about the show and, uh, and what you think we should be uh, we do, doing with it as we go forward. Also, if you want to help out the show, you can uh, check out the Buy Me a Coffee page, which is also on my website. Um, if you're looking at any kind of uh, gear for the show as well, you can check out the Redbubble page, which is there. I do want to give a big shout out to uh, to Kim Harrison for uh, taking care of me there a little bit on, uh, actually a lot of it on Buy Me a Coffee. Mick, very, very appreciated that you did that, sir, above and beyond, and I am so glad that you helped me out there. That was fantastic. A lot of fun with our discussion the other day. Now, as I mentioned before, folks, I hope you'll consider signing up for the uh, the uh, the podcast email. And uh, when a new episode comes out, it'll come to you directly. As soon as it gets published, that's the first thing I do is I send it out to my email recipients so they'll get the link that's on the Podbean app, which is the site that I host my podcast through. So today's club of the episode is the Parkside Devils. And the Parkside Amateur Football Club is based at Pitcher Park in Alphington in Victoria. And the Devils were founded back in 1934. And they're currently playing in the VAFA, the Victorian Amateur Football Association. And they have clubs on both the men's and the women's side, including seniors reserves, uh, VFA, VAFA Division Three under-19s, and on the women's side uh, as well. Now, last week in round 12, the senior men's, face, senior men's side faced off against Old Ivanhoe, and the senior women's faced off against St. Leo's. Uh, this, you know, they're now able to host games with uh, larger capacity crowds, as they posted on their social media. There's no excuse for you not to come out and watch them, so if you're a, uh, a supporter of Parkside or if you're in the area, you should definitely check them out. Make sure you pick up your ticket for the $1,000 raffle that they're having, which is going to be part of their past players reunion coming up on the 24th of July, beginning at 1 p.m. Best of luck to the Devils as they play through the rest of their 20 and 21 fixture. Now, folks, let's go ahead and get into this great discussion that I had with Frank and Tony Davis, uh, 
Tony is a longtime listener of the podcast, one of the co-founders of the Minnesota Freeze of the USAFL. And his dad, well, if you're a longtime footy fan and you're listening, you might have heard his dad's name before, Frank Davis. Frank played about a decade with the Melbourne Demons and then went on to become one of the, uh, the head honchos in the front office with Hawthorne back when they had some significant success back in the 1980s. So sit back and relax. I think you're going to like this conversation. It was a lot of fun. It was the first father-son discussion that I've had with regards to footy here. So it was really enjoyable. And it was, it was great as we're going through the conversation where Tony realized there were things that he wanted to dig into as well that I didn't necessarily have written down in the notes. And Tony went ahead and took us off on different tangents, which was fantastic because he knew nuances of things that I was not aware of. So it was a lot of fun seeing the direction that we went on that discussion. So let's go ahead and dive right into it, folks. I think you're going to like this one. Hello, everyone. I am pleased to welcome my guest to the show this evening. First, uh, a friend of the show who has uh, been a consistent contributor over the last many months providing uh, his insight during the live episodes that I do, uh, as well as being a guest back on episode number 84. I'd like to welcome Tony Davis back to the show. And joining, hey, Tony, Curry. joining Tony today is one of the, the greats of Melbourne footy. He played 168 games during his 10-year career, serving as a team captain for a couple of years with Best and Fairest as well, I believe, in 1970, if my math is correct. And uh, I'd also like to welcome Tony's father, Frank Davis to the podcast as well. Gentlemen, welcome to both of you. Thanks for taking time out of your day and uh, looking forward to talking some footy with you. My pleasure, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Craig. It's going to be a thrill for me. I might learn a few things. You might learn a few things. Okay, so uh, Frank, can you uh, tell us how you came about to, uh, to play with Melbourne? Can you kind of trace your your history as a young player before you know, up until when you debuted in 1964. Yeah. Well, back in those days, which we're going back now, we're talking about 1960 onwards. Uh, I, um, each each team in the in the VFL at that stage, which was only 12 Melbourne-based teams that were in the VFL at that stage, each of those teams had what they called a metropolitan zone, which was an area in metro in the metropolitan area, which was uh, they were was given to them, and a country area, which was also given to them. And I lived, I happened to live in, even though I was a, not, oh, well, people know I was a Collingwood supporter as a kid, but as I lived in Melbourne zone, and the uh, if I wanted to play league football or try out for league football then I had to go to Melbourne. And that's where it started. And in 1962, I uh, went down to the Melbourne Football Club with a friend of mine who lived in, also lived in the area. And what they had, what they call their under-19s, they had a team of young players that they used to develop to bring up through their, uh, through their uh, programs. And I went down and uh, asked if I could try it. I told them that I lived in Melbourne zone. And could I try out for the, for the under-19s? And uh, basically, they they didn't know who I was because uh, nobody had ever seen me play. But they said, oh, that'll, you know, come and train here and, you know, we'll see how you go. So it took me 
a season with 18 games. It took me nine games before I actually got a game in the under-19s at Melbourne. And I played the last nine games of 1962. I played all of 1963 and won the best and fairest, which is the best player in the club award. And then in 1964, I was... Um, uh, I was elevated because too old to play in the 19s. I was then elevated to the what they call a supplementary list, which is they had a list of players and then they also carried a list of about five or six young guys who, you know, they would put some work into and train and do all sort of things, those sort of things. And if you're any good, you then got elevated to the senior list. And halfway through 1964. I got elevated to the senior list, which meant I could train with the main squad of players. And uh, and it went from there. Um, I got uh, around 15 or 16 of that year, I got my first game against North Melbourne at the MCG. And uh, when we were, well, that game, you sat on the, you know, what they call sitting on the bench, which has meant you, you never got on the ground if... Now, unlike today, if players run on and off the ground and they can be interchanged all the time, back then, if you, ran, if you came off, you weren't allowed to go back on. So wow. When North, when we, yeah, we were 20 goals in front of North Melbourne at that particular <laughs> stage on that day. So they thought they had nothing to lose, I suppose, by throwing the young <laughs> kid on and see how he went. And uh, he went on and, uh, as you say, before... As he, as you know, the first kick I had in that game was a left foot snap from for goal and kicked a goal, so that was great. But uh, it just sort of went from there. I went I went back to the reserves the next week, and then I came back and played um, in the seniors again after that. In the second last game of the year, Melbourne had to win it to stay in the. What we we only had four play only four teams played in the finals at that particular stage, and Melbourne had to win. To um, stay in that in that top in that four top four, and we won that game by a couple of points against Hawthorne at Glenfrey Oval, and then the next week we played Footscray, and then we had two finals after that, and I was able to play in both finals. And history says you know I played in the premiership after <laughs> playing six games. That's terrific. That's terrific. Well, you know I so I was going to go ahead. I. No, I was just going to say, well, that's how I got started. That's okay. basically uh, how it all started. Well, I, I, I was going to ask you about your first goal. And, I, yep. you know, you, you described what it was like, and I thought it was going to be this, this, this great kick to, to come back and win the game. And it turns out that it was one that was basically just rubbing salt in a wound. Yeah, just <laughs> a bit, with just a bit of a percentage to make a higher percentage. <laughs> well, yeah, you had, that's true. You had it's it is all about the percentage. It's you know it's uh, and 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 I've I've often wondered, you know, and I and maybe I'll do this sometime for an episode that to actually sit down and do that sort of thing with like the NFL standings, like with the uh, with the points for and points against to get the percentage, yeah, to see yeah, where yeah. to see yeah. just how the NFL list would how the ladder, if you will, in the NFL would shake out if they went by percentage instead of. It does tell a story, you know, offensively and defensively. It's, it, right. it matters. And especially back in those days when only four teams made the, 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 the final series, you know, percentage would differentiate fourth from fifth or first from second, you know. And yeah. you still see it today, you know. 
I mean, Richmond's in right now just because of percentage, you know. And and St. Kilda probably won't be because of percentage, because That's you know, right. just despite you know winning by forty points, theirs is is woefully low right now. You know, right. so they, yeah. they they have to. You must you must have gained behind, you know, if you're that yeah. far behind in percentage. Yeah, yeah. that's a oh, that's a great point. You almost need to get those the other four points instead of yeah, four points correct. there. Yeah. That's a that's a that's yeah. a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. So, oh, I just I'm opening up a new tab on my other screen here. Let me go back here. So you you got your first goal and you you, you got a premiership medal first year. And you're th- and, yep. and as Tony was mentioning, you know, Melbourne had played in quite a few grand final games and finals in the previous years leading up to that. So that was, you know, there were, are you thinking to yourself, I'm coming back and doing this again here pretty soon? Well, that was the idea of it all. Well, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm, playing, I'm playing in the side that's got all of these uh, other players in it, you know, more seniors than me, of course, but, you know, who've played in three, four, five, six grand finals and won six premierships. So I right, think, right. well, I mean, I'm only a young guy here and uh, if we keep going, you know, maybe I can get the same as what they got, but it didn't quite work out like that. Um, yeah, no. certain things happened well, the following year and... Uh, before we go to 1965, because I think there's a good story in 1965, you know, um, what was your confidence level that you would get into or break into that, that 1964 team? Because, I mean, you had Barassi and, you know, I mean, you name them, you know, Hassaman and Burke and, and, oh, and um, yeah, Frank Adams. Yeah. I mean... What was your thinking? Did you think you'd have a shot well, at it? I did, I did, but I would also think that you know I had a had a bit of luck on my side um, in terms of that as the as the two probably regular players who played in the same position that I did during the year were both injured, and okay. I felt Brian Lay was one of them. Brian, you know, played a lot of games and played in two premierships and. Uh, was a bit was a big bigger and stronger player than what I was, and I'm sure that had he been fit, then he would have played. Yep. Uh, it may have meant that I might have been one of the two reserves, but we'll never know that. Um, and Ray Groom also got injured, I and mean, Ray Groom was, you know, played centre. Although he played in a different position to mine, they would have been a couple of players that would have been in the side. And obviously, a couple of players would have had to come out of the side. So, whether I would have been one of them or not, I don't know. But I just was playing, you know, I just played the way that I had always played that had uh, made me, you know, made me play that well, that they even considered me, uh, which they did. And I think when I played, I played pretty well. That game at Hawthorne against at Glenfrey Oval, the one we had to win. Uh, we played on an absolute mud heap. There wasn't a blade of grass on the ground. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it was just one of those games. And that was, the fir- that was actually the first full game that I'd actually played in the seniors. The other two times I'd come off, you know, been on, had been on reserve and come on the ground. But that was the first full game I played that year. And I, and I finished up being in probably the best six players on the ground. So 
that sort of thing, you know, helped me, you know, I suppose, put my name up there in light for them to consider if there was, you know, if there was a position available. How would you describe your game? Like, if you were, if people listening, um, I mean, is, I know it's hard to compare generations, but I mean, you mostly played half back flank, back pocket. Um, I mean, is it hard to compare? I don't think you could describe it based on today's football because, I mean, we were purely defenders. You know, we purely had to stop the player we were playing on and limit his, his, you know, ability to get the footy or do anything with it when he when he got it. Today, as we know, it's a different game. He just, uh, you know, I, I, I would have played on one or two players in a game at the most. Today, you know, you could play on six or eight players, right? So the game when they're interchange and running off and on and all the rest of it. So it's a completely different game to the, the way yeah. you played back in those days. But I was, I think I was, you know, they said I was a reliable defender who did my job and, you know, I used to like to tackle and, you know, do all those sort of things. And, um, you know, I mean, I had good skills. I could kick both feet, which... Today, some players can't even do that. But, you know, I had the ability to do that, which made it easier for me to, you know, not get myself stuck in trouble all the time. Now, well, well, it is a different game today than it was then, is it, you know, when, when you're watching games today, is there anybody that you see playing today that you look at them and say, that looks a little bit like how I used to play the game? Um. Not particularly on a, on a personal level. I don't, okay. I don't, you know, I don't look back. But I think a lot of players who play today would have been good players back in my day, whereas I think a lot of players who played in my day would have adapted to today's football and been just as good a players. I don't think it's one you could have said, well, you know, he played back in the 60s, but he wouldn't get a game now in the, you know, in the, in 2020, 21, he wouldn't get a game. But I don't think that's... Uh, Quite right, but I mean they were a different, different build of player. Today yeah. they're more athletes to play AFL football. You know, they, but back in our days, I mean we had you know guys, huge players playing for us who, you know, couldn't run out of sight in a foggy night sort of thing. You know, you wouldn't see which player they were going. But but um, you know, it was a different structure. You know, we trained two nights a week. And, you know, three, if you were, you know, if you were de- a bit dedicated, you might do some running on your own. But today, this, these players today train six days a week. Um, yeah. You know, well, and the conditions are way different. The, the, the grounds you, they play on today are pristine, you know. Uh, there is video on YouTube. If people want to Google, oh, sorry, YouTube, 1964 Hawthorne versus Melbourne, you'll see the last 20 minutes of that Melbourne Hawthorne game that Melbourne needed to win. And it's actually a pretty decent video and has commentating and everything, but the, the ground, and I, I know Glenn Ferry Oval, I've played on it. Um, it was just a mud bog. It was crazy. So, I mean, compare conditions of yeah. you know, playing conditions, you know, you don't, everything's under the roof or it's, you know, it might be a bit greasy or dewy or whatever, but it's, you don't see the mud like you used to. So, so you, you brought something up that I was going to get into a little bit later on, but it, it, I think this is a great time to bring this in because you mentioned that you only trained a couple nights a week. Okay, so, you know, I, I know 
from what I have gathered and what I've been able to read that, uh, that, that playing in the VFL or playing in the waffle at that time or the sandful or, you know, was not a full-time job at that point in time. That you had, a, you had a, you had another job at that point. Yeah. So were you were you working that job during the course of the season as well? Yeah, I had a full time job. As I, I was uh, when I started working in 1960, I was I was in a, a printer by trade, mm-hmm. an apprentice printer by trade, and I had to do a five year apprenticeship in that before I could graduate as a full time printer. Uh, and and all of the guys that I played with over the period of my whole career. All had a second job. All had a main job mm-hmm. um, to to go to each day, whether they were a school teacher or a bank teller or worked in a corporate business or a tradesman or whatever it was. They would do a day's work and then they would go to training on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night, and that was it. We would train from say five five thirty till probably seven o'clock on a, on a you know two nights a week. Okay, so and. You know, since since games were not probably as prevalently prevalently televised as they are today, where pretty much you can find every game on television somewhere, um, did they generally all get played pretty much right around the same time of day? So you know, you had like six all six games in the yeah. Uh, they're all they're all played probably two thirty on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that two thirty on a Saturday. Okay. I'm in the back of and my I mean, mind. Craig, think not all of them were televised. Right, they right. Picked, you know, one, one game or two at mm-hmm. the most, which were the game of the day, a round game of the round. Right. And they would televise those particular games. But the rest of the rest of the games, they might get some highlights from them, but they wouldn't be actually fully televised. Okay. I was I was having a little conspiracy theory thought in the back of my mind here, and I was wondering if. And I and I don't know if this is the case or not because you know there's a long history of the game, but I was I was wondering if there was ever any any player who also and I know that your your co- the coach that we're going to talk about in a little while worked as a police officer as well. In the back of my mind, I was wondering, I wonder if there was ever an instance where a a a player from Team A who was a police officer got a player from Team B arrested the night before before they were supposed <laughs> to play Team B. <laughs> It could have happened. <laughs> it could have happened. Yeah, it could have done. I don't. I don't know. It was if more that like happened. Craig. It was more like they player A was in a bar that was owned by player B, and player B overserved player A. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, right. I, I, I seem to recall seeing photographs of you know players at you know at halftime sitting down you know retying their their boots and such, smoking a cigarette and that sort of thing while they're playing, and I just. You know, knowing the size of the ground, that's just that's just mind-boggling. That 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 because that was not, I'm sure, not their only cigarette of the day they were having there. Uh. Yeah, it's been known they've been known to do that, and some of them were were known to on a very very cold windy day have a nip of whiskey at halftime or something okay. like that. You know, that, but that was you know that was very very rare that those sort of things happened. But you did hear about it that that yeah. was, you know what might have happened. I mean, because full-time professionals didn't come, what, the 80s maybe even. 80s, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and even then, from what I, from what I, uh, I interviewed Ricky Nixon last year, uh, you know, he, he talked about how that the clubs 
you know, that, that he was kind of one of the people that, that helped to, to wrestle away like that endorsement money that was coming into the clubs and putting it into the pockets of the players who were doing the endorsements. Yeah. You know, so that was, you know, that, that was kind of a neat, you know, that, that he was able to do that. And it kind of, and I think it sounds like it really changed the game and it made it to where that the players, you know, while you were certainly a professional athlete, you were still having to work another job. And, yeah. uh, you know, that maybe that sort of thing didn't have to happen as, as frequently. Yeah. Uh, they were, I mean, when I used to go, I mean, we used to, uh, when I was, particularly when I was captain, they used to have a Saturday night show on TV where they'd review all the games and then mm-hmm. Sunday morning they'd also have a television show on, uh, on, on, on TV that, you know, they would interview the captains of, or a player of, of both teams that played the day before. And you'd, you'd get a paid a fee to do that sort of thing, but... You know, but you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't going to buy you a car or something like that. You know, right, right. Doing that sort of thing, you would have had, you would have had that many, many, many appearances to get that sort of thing. So um, it's not like today where it's, uh, you know, you got all got managers. We never had managers back in that day, but all players now have managers and all, all interviews and uh, requests for interviews and that sort of thing have got to go through the managers who then I think speak to the club and they you know, they work out you know that yes certainly you know that he can you know, a particular player can go and do it but I think you know a player like today like a Dusty Martin or someone like that would command a bit more money to do something like that than some some kid who's playing his you know his first or second year right yeah you know, I've I've not. I have not spoken to any current players during the course of my podcast. I've interviewed a few you know, former players. I interviewed uh, Donald McDonald uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, very nice gentleman uh, as well. And, uh, you know, but it's, I haven't, yeah, I have a couple of current players that I think I have lined up. It just hasn't happened as of yet. Yeah. No, so it's, that's been a little bit of a tougher, tougher, you know, tougher get to be able to do that sort of thing. So, do you do you see any? And I don't I don't know if you watch the AFLW. I don't know if you watched the women's competition at all. I know I know you went and watched your daughter play yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Um, you know, and um, do you do you see some parallels between the women's game now and how the VFL was when you were playing in terms of the the jobs and that sort of thing? Are, are the women going to get to a point where they're going to be able to treat that like a, a full-time profession as players? Well, well, I think that's their aim. I think that's their aim in the, in, in the future, not too distant future, for that sort of thing to happen. Um, I mean, I'm not into that side of the game, so I, I don't know, um, you know, how they, how they would, you know, how would they, they would go doing that. Um, you know, it would probably have to be AFL-funded, mm-hmm. Um and in this and in this particular time of COVID and all the rest right, of it, right. they're losing more money than they're actually um, making. So they might, you know, they might push it back a bit. But there are some girls who are getting, you know, well paid in the women's competition, and there's always going to be that mm-hmm. uh, that the top, you know, three or four or five in the in each side are, you know, going to get some, you know, are going to be well paid. And the other girls will get paid, but I'm sure that's not something that they can live off without doing some other sort of work, you know, other sort of employment. Right, right. It's 
Yeah, it, yeah. The AFLW has been a lot of fun to watch over the last you know, couple of years as as the talent level has improved and the, and the game has improved. It's been, you know, and I, it, it's, it's kind of sad when you still see a lot of uh, people who are out on social media who will, you know, who are very much, I guess, purist, if they will, for the game because they don't, they don't like the idea of the women's competition. And I'm thinking you probably haven't watched yet. Because there are some there are some really really good athletes that are out there that are playing that game. Yeah, yeah. well, it's going to happen, and it's going to keep happening. So, yes, I mean, yes. Whether you're for, whether you're for or against, well, it, it's going to keep happening. So, and as you say, I think it's it will improve. I think there's no doubt that it has improved over the last couple of years since it actually started. And I think that the the younger girls now, the girls that are about you know around the the uh, late teens and early twenties will be the players of the future because they have sort of grown with the game. Uh-huh. That's one of the that's one of the problems you have when you've got, you know, older girls coming into the system who haven't grown up with the game. They might have played other sports like basketball, netball, and those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And it's it just takes it's the little idiosyncrasies about the game that um, you know that it's let some girls down over a period of time, but the younger girls are being trained in those areas. So, you know, they've got more, I think they'll have more to offer in the future. And Craig, I think you can, you can relate to this. You'll get to relate to this a bit when you go watch some USAFL games. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when I started with the freeze, Minnesota freeze, you know, bringing the Americans in who are very athletic male and female, um, and they could cat, they could do the running, they could do the jumping, they could marking the ball was probably mm-hmm. a skill they adapted too quickly, but kicking on the run mm-hmm. and bouncing, um, and then obviously all the like Dad said the intuition of you right, know, right. how you play the game. I mean, when you're starting at a as a five year old, uh, and that's all you know, um, you know. I think we see that in the States, you know, and that's why we haven't really had the chance to get anyone other than Mason Cox, but he's, he's over there cause he's eight feet tall. <laughs> um, you know, but besides that, we haven't really had the chance. And I know there's a couple of uh, USAFL women that have cracked some of the AFLW teams. And I think you'll see more of that too. So it's a bit that same way. It's that I think the generation will next generation yeah. will be fantastic. Well, and that's, and I and you know you you wonder and I think we might have even discussed this previously as well. You know you've got you know you got four clubs. You've got, I think it's what Essendon, Hawthorne, um, Port Adelaide, and I can't think of who the fourth one is off the top of my head Sydney, right now. Hmm? Might be the Swans. Mm, yeah, Sydney does not have a women's club yet. Yes, that's right. Um, you know that you wonder whether or not there are what would that be about 120. 130 players that are at the caliber that could play at the AFLW level right now to, to fill out the list. Are they going to, are they going to dilute the, uh, the product significantly there? So, you know, I, I know, and I, and Frank, I know you're, you're involved with the Hawks and I know that uh, Mr. Canada has been very adamant about getting a, uh, an AFLW club here very soon. Um, it's uh and I, I think what twenty twenty two is when I've heard maybe the earliest that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Now, but I think that 
like with bringing bringing more sides in, as you say, I think it, it does dilute the standard of the game. I think like even even with the AFL, it is with eighteen sides. It's diluted the standard of AFL football in some ways. There's a lot of players, in my opinion, who who are on AFL lists who are not up to AFL standard, but they're there because they need to have these players on their list. And I think you know, that that to me just dilutes the standard of the game. I think back in the back in the eighties, when it was the other way around, uh, you had the you had AFL, BFL football, AFL football, as it came midway through the 80s, at a really, really high standard because you had the best players from South Australia, uh, Western Australia, um, Queensland, if there was any, or Tasmania, whatever it might have been. Right, right. Who came, came in and played with all these local clubs, um, like the 12 clubs in the, in, the, in the BFL at that stage. And the standard of football was... You know, it was high, really, really high, and it was really. High. And then, you know, the the advent of, Port, of Adelaide coming in, and then the Eagles came in from the west, and they did away with the zoning that I was talking about previously, mm-hmm. where I came from. Um, you know, those players then were more inclined to stay at home than come to Victoria and, and play in Victoria. Right. So it's I- just going to be just going to be careful. I mean, Hawthorne, as far as the girls' side go, they do have a. A woman's side, like a VFLW, yes, yeah, doesn't play in the AFLW. Right, right. So they're they're gaining experience at that level, and then hopefully, hopefully, once they're able to be introduced into the the next level up, they'll be ready to compete at that level. Then, yeah, yeah, that's That's a great point, and I I wasn't factoring that in, and that's a that's a that's a really good point. Um, You know, I want to get back real quickly to you know. All the way back to when you first started, first started playing, and you were in. I wonder, and I'd been meaning to get to this. You were with the under 19s. Now, to, today, would that kind of be considered to be like the 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 VFL the VFL quads, like the Box Hill, that type of thing, where you got the the young kids who were you know maybe have been drafted on the larger list now, or who are there who were trying to apply their trade to learn the game and hopefully get drafted in a subsequent draft? Is that where they're playing? Uh, well, when, when they dismissed the, the under-19 situation, they then, the eight, through the, and, and that was like the, um, the Melbourne, when I was playing at Melbourne, Melbourne Footy Club subsidised that. They, that was part of their deal. You know, they looked after the under-19s. But when it all, when they did away with the, the, the areas, the zones, and it became uh, the AFL then brought in a competition to made and made it under 18 instead of under 19, and they they have uh, six country. I think it's seven suburban and five country sides playing in a competition now, which is similar, very similar to the under 19s. And that's where we've also gone to the draft system, which you know you would know plenty about that sort of thing. And each year they have a draft where the bottom sides get the the picket the better players and it works in from that. So they've, they've brought that that in and that's the way we've gone. So they, yeah, put, the kids, you know, and once those kids get drafted, like once a boy gets drafted from the from the under 18s to a league to an AFL club, his his basic um, apprenticeship is done through, like particularly at Hawthorne, is done is done at Box Hill, 
and I think it was at Melbourne, he would be down at the Casey Demons or somewhere like that. You know? So uh, that's just sort of regarded as a step or two below AFL, the VFL, and then you've got the under-18 competition, which is for all the junior kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, as we as we progress through your career, you, you become the, uh, the vice captain of the club in 1969, and then, if I'm not mistaken, the captain in 1971? 70. 70. 1970, 71, okay. 72. So, you know, I, I, I've never asked this question of anybody before, and I, and I think I kind of have an idea, but what role does a, a captain of a club actually play? You talking I, about nowadays or when, well, I, or when you were playing? Because, you know, you know, the, the only frame of reference that I have is the, the video that, that was out uh, a couple of months ago with uh, – um, on Amazon Prime with Stephen Canelio when he was the cap- captain of the Giants and just he had a really tough year where he was getting he wasn't being able to get games and I don't think that's what the role of the captain necessarily is. So yeah. what what did you do as captain in in the early 1970s? Well, basically, I looked at my role as uh, as being a leader, uh, someone who was um, yeah a leader within the club, a leader within the players, uh, tried to help the players try to set an example on the ground, you know, to be, to try and, and I presume, you know, in 1970 when May captain, I also won the best and fairest. I obviously was, you know, doing my job there in terms of leading the team and showing the way. But we also used to do some, uh, we'd also have to do some, you know, um, a bit of a TV work, not a lot, and you would get calls from, you know, clubs or um places like that to, who, who would come through the club and the club would organise you maybe to go to these particular places. But, uh, look, it was nowhere near as bad as it is today. Um, you know, we were, you know, I, I wouldn't have done heaps of them. Um, maybe maybe on average one a week, something like that. But okay. So like a marketing thing or was it? Yeah, uh, marketing type situation. Yeah, yeah, marketing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I flew to Tasmania at one stage and did one, and um, where else we fly to? We went to, um, I think I went to WA at one stage and did something over there. Uh, but you know, they were very, they were very rare. Um, for those were you involved in the selection of the team and all? Uh, not really, no. Okay. I used to go to selection, but I never was, never got a vote. So. Okay. Um, yeah. And then only, yeah, that was only when you were, you know, when you were captain. I mean, that was only from 70, 70 on with, but, um, yeah, you never got a vote. You, but you, you might be, they might ask you about a player or what do you think about this player or, you know. Were you voted in by your teammates or by the coaches or? No, uh, the committee at that stage did it. Okay. The, 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 the committee, committee, the, the, committee, yeah. The, the, board the football, the football club? club? Oh, the football yeah. club board. Okay. The football club board, yeah. Okay. With the coach probably had a say too, right? Oh, he would have had a say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, uh, I found an article from January of 1973. So I, I would have been 10 at that. Well, I would have been nine at that time um, uh, from the Age newspaper. And it, it was an article um, about you being replaced as captain. By uh, by Stan Alves, is that the pronunciation? Stan Alves, yeah, Alves. Yeah, Alves. Alves. So, yep. 
you know, it's you know, and it goes into the uh, the selection process here uh, that, that Gary Hardiman was named the vice captain and uh, Tony Sullivan deputy vice captain, but it finishes out. The footnote at the end states here that the club's annual report last season said that Frank, by his example and devotion to his team, is an ideal captain. His great courage in inspires the young members of the team. That sounds pretty pretty positive right there. <laughs> and then they didn't keep you on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't. I don't. Seventy three. I didn't probably play all that well. Okay. Uh, I was, oh, sorry, 72, I probably didn't play all that well. And, um, yeah, and I think I think back in that day, after being, after going back to 64 and being involved in the in the finals and then mm -hmm. playing, playing 65 through to 72 at that stage, and we, apart from 65 where we won eight games in a row and then, um, lost in the last 10 games, I think we only won three and we didn't make the finals. So, but we basically had the same team as 1964. But since that time, Melbourne had sort of uh, gone downhill, just gone downhill, gone downhill. And I think, men not physically, but I think mentally at the end of that, at the end of the 72 season, mm -hmm. um, although I didn't think about leaving, I I, it didn't surprise me that they appointed a new captain on that. And I, I mean, I just played, I just played out 73 as, a, as an ordinary, you know, just a player. Yeah. And then I, I gave it away. I retired at the end of 1973 there. But I think it was more mental on the fact that, well, we're going nowhere. Um, you know, we're, what's the future of the footy club? Unless they do turn it around, which has taken them 57, 54 years to do it. Uh, turn it all around. Um, yeah. we, we're never going anywhere, so I might as well go and do something for myself. I was only 28 years of age, but I'd had a couple of offers to go and coach, so I took one of those. Okay. I wasn't sure if Tony was going to pop in there or not. Well, no, I, I think for me at the time, I was, I was five, so I don't remember a whole lot okay. about it. Uh, okay. But um, I did, we moved, so obviously that triggered a memory because we moved to South Australia for a couple of years. Um, was it one year or two? Two. Two years, two. yeah. In uh, Mount Gambier, which is a, a town south of Sydney, right on the South Australian Victoria border. Um, but I think, you know, so I don't have a great, I don't have any memory of, of Dad's playing career um, uh, other than I took, I took on the Melbourne um fanship or supportership at that time and have kept it for 50 odd years and and as my siblings have converted over to the hawks um i was going to ask about that yeah we'll get to that in a little bit <laughs> I, 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 before we move on i just wanted to get back to 1965 briefly so i think it's important to know this because any melbourne supporters listening you know they win the flag in 64 you know it was a tight tight game um Barassi leaves goes to carlton but that's about the only change right Yep. Melbourne wins the first eight games. They're eight and zero in '65, so they're cooking. And and then the bottom falls out. And at that time, Norm Smith, the the, the famous coach, gets sacked and then unsacked, uh, and then finally sacked again at the end of the, I think at the end of the year, right? He got yeah. sacked. 
So, so I mean, so, well, hang on a second. He got he yeah. got he lost his job, got rehired, and then got fired again all in the same year. Yes. Yep. Oh yeah. So this is this wow. is where when Craig, when you talk about like Red Sox and the Cubs and you know the Indians, even your Browns, your yeah. Indians, you know, <laughs> name any Cleveland team other than the Cavs that one year. Um, but you talk about like. Um, I'm not a big voodoo guy or, you know, um, some sort of, uh, you know, mystic uh, occurrence. Mm-hmm. But, you know, halfway through this following year from a premiership year, and they've won, you know, f- what, five flags in 10 years or something, um, the match committee or the the club committee decides to sack Norm, Norm Smith of any – I mean, they name a medal after the, the guy, you know. I mean um, – <laughs> That that just those vibes have to. I mean, it, you know, we're fifty-seven years later and we still talk about it. But I mean, I'm curious, Dad, what your experience was as a young twenty-year-old going through. I mean, you you know, you got the iconic coach. Did you really? I mean, you knew Norm Smith was, you know, he's the, you know, top couple coaches of all time. I mean, yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, I I've never I never had a problem with with Norm Smith. I mean, he never. He never abused me. I mean, he, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting situation when you talk to the older players, the players that did play through all the great times that they had at the club at that particular stage. And there's a lot of them that didn't like Norm Smith, sure. um, but just in the manner in which he did certain things and and all the rest of it. And, and he have a you know like the '64 Grand Final when Neil Crompton was down in the centre of the ground and he got the ball and kicked the goal, he never said anything to Crompton after the game. Like, he was he was, he was was dirty on Crompton because he had gone against team rules and was up in the centre of the ground where he actually played right back in defence. Yeah. So, I mean, if the guy didn't kick the goal, Melbourne don't win. Right. But that's, that, wasn't, that wasn't in his plan that he should do that sort of thing. So, I mean... Those sort of things happen, and I—I I mean, and I was look—I was a young, naive, twenty-year-old player that did, if he said jumped, I said how high, and you know all those sort of things. I mean, I was—I was looking after, trying to look after me, uh, trying to play in a in a side that contained a heap of champion players, which they were when you look back on them over over the time. So yeah, uh, but he wasn't a nurturing guy. He was not a, but was he? Did, were you fearful of him? Was he scary? Um, was he? Well, what the, was the emotion? Well, the, give respect. Me an idea what he was like. I mean, I didn't. I don't. I don't think I feared him, but I, you know, I did respected him. But when I was, when I came midway through 1964, which would have been sometime around about uh, late June, when I made the senior list. Once you made the senior list you trained at the MCG with the senior side. I'd never done that prior to that. Uh, I didn't train with the senior, even though I was playing in the seconds, I didn't I didn't train with the senior side. But when I walked into the rooms that first night, the, the secretary of the club, Mr Cardinal, he, Jim, he'd rung me and said, you've been promoted to the senior list, you're now trained with the seniors, so you've got to be at the MCG at you know, 4.30, whatever it is on Tuesday night, to train with the seniors. And I said, OK, thanks for that. And when I walk into the room, um, the room that Norm Smith got, you know, got changed in and everything was directly opposite the door that led into the room. And when he saw me come in into the into the room, he came over to me and he said to me, "What are you doing here?" 
And I said, well, Mr. Carville rang me last night and said that I've been put on the senior list and I've got to come down here and, and train with the seniors. And he said, well, I wish they'd tell me what's going on around here. And he turned around and walked off. Seriously? Oh, I wow. never knew that. That's this. Wow. Craig, that's number one of the things I never knew. I, that's, maybe what, that's what he said to me. And then from then on, like, you know, him and I had a good relationship and he had a good relationship with my wife, Pat. My dad, my dad used to go to the footy, but very rarely, very rarely came into the rooms. Um, and he said to me one day, you better bring your father. You know, I've got to meet, you know, i got to meet your father. And he had a good chat to him. But, you know, he just had a certain way of doing things and you did it his way or you didn't do it at all sort of thing. Well, and, and, and even, before, even before the grand final, the grand fi on grand final day, about an hour and a quarter before the game, he got all the team into the medical room. And he said, look, he said, I've got a, heard a rumour going around that you guys don't think you can win this game. Now, he said, anybody who, who thinks that way, put your hand up and I'll get someone to replace you. And of course, nobody put their hand up, but he was just trying guys out. You know, he was just trying to psych them into thinking that, you know, you know I, win this game. And that's what he was like. I wonder that first encounter with, with you in the room I wonder, because it sounds like the, the whole put your hand up thing, that, that, that just says, you know, a little psychology right there. Was it a little psychology that he was putting on you as you're coming in the room for you to see you demonstrating the, the confidence in your skill set to be up there now with the, with the big club? Was he saying, what the hell are you doing here? And you're going, yeah, yeah. I, I've heard this. They've told me yeah, to be sure. here. I'm sure he was. I'm sure he yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> That yeah, is. interesting. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm my my you know half an hour I spent at Hawthorne uh, in the under 19s. We trained with the seniors at one point, and uh, Alan Jeans, I he I was scared of that man. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean it was it was the same thing. He just had that, you know. I mean, it was a respect thing too, but it was also he he had a set of rules and he had his way. And if he said sprint from that cone to that cone. And you didn't, as I didn't during one of the sessions, and he blew the whistle and brought everybody in and looked at me and and and, and said, "What are you doing? Uh, that's not what you know." And I and I was just in. I was like looking around at all these famous players, and I was like in, out of my element. But yeah, I mean, I think that coaching style, I think, still does exist. I think you know, um, it's just fascinating to hear. Um, your your early perception of Norm, you know, because uh, he kept coaching for a while, but he didn't have a lot of success after that, right? No, he went to South Melbourne after that, yeah, yeah. yeah. But even even when he got like he got the sack, and I got a I got a call from the club saying, you know, Norm's been sacked. Don't talk to anybody. Don't talk to the press. Don't do, you know? Don't go anywhere or anything. And then a, half an hour later, I got a I got a call from the club captain. That's a man, and he said, "Look, we're having a meeting. Players all having a meeting. Da da da. So be there." So I went to the meeting. So, uh, this is uh, during uh, the week, right? Uh, this was mid, during the mid, week, yeah. mid season sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But he, and did he, he, you know, we we played North Melbourne the following week and got and lost, and then he got reinstated after that. So, uh, but. Yeah, we only yeah. Oh. But I think the, the damage had been done by then, so uh, yeah, that was it. 
So yeah, you know it. It it's evident that uh, that he that he definitely wanted you to be playing your position on the ground. Now he was not there during your final year of the club, if I'm not mistaken, right? He was gone by then. Uh, he's gone by then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you know, going back to the uh, to the uh, your first goal, your first goal, which was. Uh, Let's just be honest. It probably did not make the highlight reel because it was, it was the you know putting the club ahead by 147 points instead of 141 or whatever the number happened to be. A huge amount. Uh, how was that second goal? Because we're not we're going to talk about all of them here tonight. <laughs> well, well, I won't take long to talk about the second goal. The second goal was in the last year, 1973. When I was once again playing, we played at this was a Glenferry Oval, which is Hawthorne's home green at that stage. And my memory of it is that I grabbed, I grabbed the ball in the centre of the ground, and I looked up. Oh, the centre of the ground wasn't far from the goals. But, uh, it was a very small <laughs> ground, Craig. Okay, okay. I looked up, I looked up, and all I could see was Don Scott coming at me. Now Don Scott was captain of Hawthorne in that start at that stage. And he was, you know, you know, his, uh, his, uh, what was say, his persona was that he was a big, tough guy, and you know, he would just, you know, run straight through you and knock you down and do all those sort of things. So I saw him coming, so I just kicked the ball as hard as I could, and he kept coming and flattened me. And the umpire blew the whistle, and everybody stopped, and the and the ball went down through and rolled down through the goals. And that was the second goal. <laughs> so there wasn't any great almost there almost any, there wasn't any great science in kicking the second goal. It was only personal protection. <laughs> now, did you win that game? Um, no, no, no. I'd have to look up the record. Okay, <laughs> we'll have. Craig, to... I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh... you just remember Don Scott not uh, taking it to the ground. I just remember Don Scott coming charging through the middle of the ground. Yeah, and I thought oh, I better get rid of this footy in a hurry and protect myself. And, the, so and that's the, what the game has certainly, you know, has certainly changed in terms of the the contact. Even in the in the short time that I've been watching it, you know, where they've been, you know, they've been working at trying to, you know, protect people from concussions and that type of thing so you know it's uh did you ever find yourself in a position where you looking back at it now where you think i probably had one or two of those and stayed out on the ground uh well i can't at this stage i can't remember that many of any of the games so the answer craig is yes (laughs) i I did i did cop a couple of concussions yeah i did i remember Okay. Uh, Ted, Whit- Ted Whitten, who was a famous footballer around that particular time, you know, he was played at the Footscray Football Club, and he 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 uh, somehow he cleaned me up one day at the MCG. So uh, that was one concussion. Um, second one was at Foot. Uh, second one was at Footscray, I think, and I got a knock. They knocked, bloke knocked a tooth out. So um, wow. Uh, yeah, and then the third, yeah, the third one was at South Melbourne, and I think about probably the last year I played. Okay. Uh, the full forward, I st- I st- the full forward, he was leading out to get the ball, and I ran, I ran across in front of him, and he just kept running, and that was it. I, I woke up in the dressing room. So, um, wow, you know, wow, that was the third one. But so, yeah, you, did you have a lot of pressure when you guys? Because you were saying earlier that when you came off the ground back then, you couldn't count re, you know, you couldn't, you got hurt. Yeah you're off and you're done for the day. I mean, do you ever feel like you had 
pressure to stay on the ground when you were injured no. or just no? no? Okay. No. Okay. So you, you finish up your playing career and you start getting involved in, in coaching and you made the you made the, the trek to South Australia for a couple of years. Yeah. And you you come back then as an assistant, if I'm not mistaken, you came back as an assistant with Melbourne? If I, like, if I wrote it's, it's like the winter, winter Man Gambia, which was what Tony said in seventy four and five. Yeah. And uh, played there, and then we came back to Melbourne. In, and in '76, I played in the Southwest Gippsland Football League. That's the year I played okay. in, in that game, and we played in the grand final, and we lost that game. And then in 1977, the, uh, the end of 1976, Melbourne rang me and asked me if I would come back and coach the reserves in 1977. Okay. And well, that's when I went back there and went '77, '78, '79. Let's stick with let's stick with the the the, the Southwest Gibson 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 League here for just Gibson a moment. Gibsland, Gibsland. Gibsland. I'm sorry. Uh, He's been on the radio in uh, Gibsland, so he knows it. Yeah. So let <laughs> in me. I I found a uh, I found an article then also from the age from 1976 in September, and it it said it it and it uh, it referenced you in this article. So it said the VFL is not the only place where football is big business. Teams in the Southwest Gibson League are involved in, in big money deals as well, like the $50,000 at Berwick would have won in bets had it won Sunday night's grand final against Keysboro. Each Berwick That's player, right. each Berwick player were, were, was on, the, on between $5,000 it must be $10,000 for a win, and that, that's on top of the big match payouts, payments handed out to their stars like former Melbourne captain Frank Davis. According to one, according to one estimate, according to one estimate, a quarter of a million dollars would have been paid out in the players' payments by the eight teams in the big in the league this year. So, so there there was a lot of, and it sounds like you guys were betting on yourselves here. Uh, to be honest, man, I don't even, I don't even know anything about that. I mean, I played, there. I played there and got played reasonably well, but. Um, yeah, winning uh, the I grand final. Any, you didn't I, don't know any, I don't know anything about the uh, the betting part of it. I got no idea. Okay. Well, I think he means like you're betting on yourself to win. You know, with a bonus. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't bet on myself to win anything. I'm telling you now. I was. Okay. I just. I, I, I saw was, that. I were a good chance. So you actually went back and played another year after you had been in, in in uh, was it yeah, Mount Gambier? Yeah, I played. Yeah, I did. Yeah, okay, yeah. so was it was it more of a you missed a game and you wanted to play again, or was there a uh, a, a finan the financial enticement enough to get you to go back for another year? In terms of playing at playing in the Southwest Games, yes. yes. Well, when I finished, I finished in South Australia. I could, the only reason I, we came to, back to Melbourne at the end of nineteen seventy five was I couldn't get any work. Oh, okay. And the club, the club couldn't supply me with a job. Okay. So we came back to Melbourne, and it was too late then, you know, just at that particular stage to, you know, get a coaching job in Melbourne or do anything. Mm -hmm. And I had a good friend of mine who I knew through our local church here, who um, had had a, um, a contact or was it, was was part of the contact with the uh, Berwick Football Club. Okay. And that's how that's how I came to play up there. So. Um, yeah, and they wanted me to, at the end of 1976, they wanted me to coach them. 
And I, I told them that I couldn't because Melbourne had spoken to me and I was going back to Melbourne. So that's, uh, that's, the, only re- that's the reason I only played one year there. Okay. So you, after that then, did you, you, I know you got back into coaching because you were, um, by 1979, you were, you were back coaching with the D's because you got to be a senior coach for one game, okay? Now, yeah. I, 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 and I looked at the scores, and I didn't write the score down, but the, the, the previous game, which I believe was against uh, Essendon, if I'm not mistaken, um, it, was, uh, it was a pretty pretty ugly game. But then the previous week, you lost, but not, not by nearly as much as the gentleman. Um, is it Carl Diederich? 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 Yeah, yeah Diederich. Diederich that, that, had been, that had been suspended. Um, and it was it – was, Tell us about that because it was also a funny story about that game prior to that because uh, you know you well, had to... you know, he, he he must have he got um, he got disqualified in the Essendon game it must have been he must have whacked somebody uh-huh. I'm not sure when he what he did but he went he went to the tribunal during the week and they and they uh, disqualified him for I don't know one week I think it was and that's how I came to be involved in coaching the team. But what the football club tried to do was um, was to get a – he wasn't allowed on the ground. That was part of the deal. He, he got rubbed out for a week and he wasn't allowed on the ground as coach because he was captain coach at the side at that particular stage. He also played. Now, he wasn't allowed to come onto the ground at all. So what they tried to do was to hire a crane or a scissor lift uh-huh. and – Put it on the on the on the boundary, you know, inside outside the boundary line over the fence, and he could coach from that. Yeah. And the league wouldn't let him do that, so okay. that meant that he addressed the players before the game and at half time, and I addressed the players at quarter time and three quarter time. So that's how I come to sort of. Okay. And now, I'm still waiting to get I'm still waiting to get paid for that particular game. <laughs> I didn't get an increase in salary. No. I I have to. <laughs> I have to ask this question in this manner here. Um, did Robert and Glenn Elliott really look that much alike one another? Um, oh, I wouldn't have thought. I wouldn't say they were identical. Okay, you know why? Like, you know why I'm asking that question, right? Um, well, I know Glenn Elliott played at Melbourne. Yeah, Glenn right. Elliott well, there th- that that game. I, I believe it was the same game where uh, the senior coach was uh, was suspended from or was reported for. Um, those two players, one of them, they switched Guernseys before a game. So one of the brothers came out in the other in the other brother's oh, Guernsey, oh, okay. right and uh, okay. and the and the club got fined for that as well. <laughs> um, got fined five hundred dollars for. For uh, yeah, yeah. playing Robert in the wrongly numbered jersey at Essendon the previous Saturday, so they they got fined five hundred bucks at that point in time. Yeah. <laughs> they, didn't have, they didn't have a very good week, did they? <laughs> I hadn't heard that story either, Craig. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, that one well, yeah. the way it, and the way it sounds here is it sounds like this is something that that tended to happen quite a bit because this article I found it says that, you know apart from. Um, the, the coaches lost. The demons had also been fined five hundred dollars for this. The demons indulging in the growing practice of trying to pull a swifty over the opposition played Elliot in the number eight jumper, officially listed in the VFL record as his brother's, his brother Glenn's 
number. number. So, okay. so something must have happened where maybe Robert, you know, this this would have, was this still at the time where if you got if you were you know on the ground and you got hurt, you were not allowed to re-enter. Re yep. Okay, yep. so maybe something happened here where he had been he had been part of the the the, the named list of players, and maybe something happened in pregame. Uh, or maybe he got hurt or something before the game, and they and they just said, "Hey, you're not playing today. You look like him. Put his put his jumper <laughs> on." <laughs> Were they the same quality player? I don't remember either uh, one. No, no. Right. Uh, Glenn Abbott was a really good player, real good centre man for you know St Kilda. He was playing with at a particular time, um, and Robert, you know, Robert was a, a part time player. That he he was okay, Robert. Yeah, but. Um, Glenn was the better player. Yeah, I think that's absolutely hilarious. It's uh, <laughs> so you, you've uh, you've moved on from coaching, and you and, and you actually you move on to another club and get uh, get a position with Hawthorne, and you are. And let me find my list here. My my notes. Let me scroll down here to where I was. Uh, oh, cred. Where did I put it? Um. You become the country development officer for the Hawks for four seasons. Actually, actually, yeah, for four seasons. Now, does does is that job exactly what it sounds like? Because you were talking about how you still had the 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 different parts of Melbourne and then the country zones, if you will, where you could draw players from. So was your was your job at that point in time going out and scouting those players that were outside of Melbourne? Yeah, basically that was the job. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. But it was we. Got, I got the job as country development officer, which which meant we had to move from Mulgrave, where we lived, to Warrigal, which was inside the country development area. So okay. we had to move. We moved there for four years. But the, basically, what you did there was, um, and I presume it was just it was like a recruiting role. You know, you used to go around. We used to go around all the leagues inside that area and and uh, and watch the games and you know if we thought there were young guys who were good enough to come down and and play um, then we would um, we would bring them down to the under 19 training and they would train and you know if they wanted to they would you know basically have a get a game in the under 19 to see whether they were good enough to go any higher so but the, the club but the club also, Spent a lot of money within that within that area, mm -hmm, developing, mm -hmm. helping development of junior football and senior clubs. You know, they would provide footballs, they would provide Guernseys. Um, I would uh, any of the schools in the competition really they had nowhere to play, so I would run competitions for them to play in during the week. And okay. most of the most of the schools were, you know, were very good in that regard. That they all, you know, they gave their permission. So we would look at, you know, certain pockets in that area, and we would place, you know, four or five high schools or technical schools or Catholic schools or whatever they might have been into a competition, and you know, they would play each other, and uh, you know, for that sort of thing. And you know, they would probably, you know, they might have got a thousand dollars or something if they won the competition. But it was okay. an incentive to do that. Yeah. And all the local clubs and around the area, we would get the senior players at Hawthorne each year would be allocated a couple of nights during the season where they had to go down to that particular club and train with the kids and train with the club and, you know, 
give a talk to the players or give a, do something like that, you know. So okay. they tried to put as much effort into looking after the zone and as they did, at, you know, trying to get players out of it. So, so who who are some of the you know, who are some of the the, the players that, that you found during that time period that went on to become uh, integral parts of the Hawks? Because yeah, we're so we're getting at that point in yeah. time. We're getting that point in time where they're where you're going to start yeah. winning some premierships here. Yeah. Well, in, you've got the sort of two areas. You've got that country zone area, and then you've got, you know, you moved on then to the draft area. So that was the two where once, you know, it finished in 86. Okay. But right. back in, like, from the country area, we had, uh, I think, Greg and Paul Deere. Uh, Paul Deere, uh, yeah, Paul Deere finished up winning a Norm Smith medal. In the eighty no, the ninety one grand final, I think it was the ninety one grand final. Yep. Um, who else we have come there? Robert Hanley, the, I mean these were all players that played senior football, they're not household names. Um, who else we have? Uh, Ray Jenke, he played in the grand final side. Uh, well, and you know, before that even Gary Ayres, that was a little bit before your time, but Yeah, that was before my time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but they all came out of that Paul country Abbott, yeah. country zone. zone. That was their zone, yeah. They, yeah. they got yeah, they got some really good players from, from that area in that time and uh you know. Well there was a, yeah. a, a someone that um Craig's very familiar with, uh, uh a certain Ablett family that um came out of that zone. They only one of the brothers stayed at Hawthorne, really. Was Gary was there for Gary Senior was there for what, five minutes? Yeah, Gary Senior yeah. I mean I saw Gary Senior play before he went to Hawthorne, he played on the wing for a side called Druin, a town called Druin, and uh, I don't know, he kicked nine goals from the wing or something one day. So, I mean, he didn't have to be too smart to work out that he was going to be a league player, but he had, he had his problems. You know, he came to Hawthorne and was given the opportunity to play, um, but um, yeah, th things happened in his, in his life and he sort of um, he mucked it up for himself and Alan Jeans, who was a coach at that particular stage, was a policeman and he had strict rules and if you didn't didn't adhere to them, it didn't matter who you were, um, you know, he didn't want you there. So, uh, you know, they, they finished up, you know, finished up getting rid of him and he finished up down at Geelong eventually, yeah. Yeah, I wonder what happened he came, to him. Came, super, came a superstar, but, um, yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, so you, you spent four years... I could tell you the story with Gary Abbott, but I better not do it on air. Okay, that's I, I, I yeah, I don't, I, I have, I have kind of uh, joked with some people that I said, you know, I had the the interview that I did with with Ricky Nixon, and you you probably have heard lots of Ricky Nixon stories over the years of things that have gone yeah. on. I, I'd heard all of those too, but when I when I reached out to interview him, I I, I had told him I said, you know. I, I told myself, I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about those things. He's talked about those things to death. So I went, I dug into stuff, all kinds of other things about him that nobody ever talked about before. And he, you know, we got, you know, we, cause he said, well, I can give you half an hour. So I talked to him for half an hour and we got done. He told me, he said, I've never had anybody ask those kinds of questions to me before. I really appreciate it. And yes, you know, so I felt pretty good about that. So I, and I, I joked with people, I said, you know, Maybe someday I can reach back out to him and say, "Hey, do you think you can set up an interview with?" Yeah, no. Gary I'm not, yeah, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I would love to do that, but I'm not. I mean, I'm not. I'm. 
But again, I would have to take the same approach because there's been so much stuff that's you know that's been talked about that that he hasn't necessarily talked about, but people yeah. know about it. You know, so you'd have yeah. to go find the positive things that have happened in his, you know, in his career and in his life afterwards. Right. You know, what's oh, it you know, dad of a, you know, a, you know, player of the caliber of his son and that that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, as you say, it's easy to. It's easy to zone in on the things that, you know. Right, right. The things, he, you know, that he got involved in and shouldn't have got involved in or whatever it might have been. Yeah. I, and mean, I, I, don't know, I don't know Gary Ablett personally, but the short time he was at Hawthorne, he, you know, he was going to be a, a really, really good player. But, you know, things happened and I don't, you know, I don't know what happened and all the rest of it. But one minute he was there, next minute he was gone. And, and that was just the way that, you know, the yeah. club was at that particular stage and um, and he, he came back and went to Geelong and became a superstar. So uh, no doubt about that. So you moved up to become the recruiting manager. And yeah. is that is that position and, and again I I'm learning about this one of the reasons I'm doing these interviews is it's helping me learn a little bit about the the nuts and bolts of how of how the clubs operate as well as hopefully, you know, people here in the States that are listening as well. Now was that exclusively still working with, you know, new players that are going to be drafted, that sort of thing? Or were you also involved in the, the, the trade aspect of things and the draft and that and that sort of thing as well? With no, the, well, you got involved in all those sort of things. Okay. Right? When, okay. when you became the recruiting manager because you were, you were, you know, you were recruiting for the lifeline of the footy club. Right, right. Uh, and if you, you know, and as we know now, and it's the same in the NFL, I mean, you see it there, you know, if you don't, if you don't draft the best players at the, at the right time, then, you know, the recruiting department or, the, you know, the scouts or whatever they are, they call them over that way, you know, they're in trouble. They, uh, I'm sure that they over there get the sack as quickly as guys here do, you know, so, but it's all right. The, the problem... The problem I find here sometimes is with the media is it's all hindsight. You know, mm-hmm. they stay there, you know, well, the, the draft of 2003, you know, I mean, I can't remember who was in it, but whatever it was, but, you know, he was taken first, he was taken second, he was taken third, he was taken, but they could have taken this guy, you know, or right, right. he was taken 10th, but they had a pick before they could have done this, you know, and it's all, it's all hindsight of, um, you know, and, but it can make, it can be the making of football club than it was at, at Hawthorne in the late 2000s because they finished up with Buddy Franklin and uh, mm-hmm. Jordan Ruffhead and Jordan Lewis and all right, these right. guys in one Run draft. So we've got yeah. three really good well, players in one draft. And and you know and let's you know let's yeah and I was I, reason I was asking about that is because I wasn't sure what the the differentiation between say the list manager and the recruiting manager was. So I wasn't. I wasn't sure. Is the list manager more along the lines of actually negotiating contracts and that type of thing? That's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, some guys, some guys can be both. Though okay. We'll see in some clubs that he'll be both the list manager and the recruiting manager. They, they can get people, you know, get guys to do that sort of thing. But okay. it's to know, it's to know what funds you've got available, and you know, that your salary cap is X amount of dollars, and you know, next year we're playing, we're paying up to ninety percent of that, or they've got to pay a hundred percent of it, but. You know, we've got a little bit over for someone who we might get in the draft and that sort of thing like that. Uh, well, would would yeah. it be would it be wrong of me to say? And and I'm and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to you know toot your horn here, but 
I, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I, I, and I haven't, I don't have anybody to compare it to, but I would have to say that the argument could be made that you were one of the more successful recruiting managers for a period of a, a number of years there, putting together a, a list that was going to be playing in all these grand finals and bringing a lot of premierships to the Hawks. Yeah. Well, but yeah, some of the players, some of the, the better players like Michael Tuck and Gary Ayres and these were already at the club, mm -hmm. you know, before I even started at the club. So, okay. you know, they were involved with that. But we did bring in, yeah, we did bring in, I didn't, it wasn't all me personally. I mean, I had a, I had a, I had a, uh, a, um, uh, what do you call him, a uh, list manager, I had a sort of a list manager above me and between us, you know, he worked, he worked things out and, but when you went to the draft, it was, you know, you went in consultation with the coach. You spoke to the coach about the type of player that he was looking for and the type of player that fitted that particular criteria and, and those sort of things. And then you were able to go from there and try and hopefully pick the best player. I always worked on the theory of my, the first pick in the draft had to be a player who would be capable of playing 200 games of, of football, you know, not not 100 or not 20 or 30, but 200 of them, and was going to be a long-term player because it's just so hard to, you know, it's just so difficult to pick players and at 18 and what they're going to be like when they're 25. Yeah, you don't you don't want to get that wrong. That's that's a that's hard to get that first pick wrong. Yeah. And and during the 80s, too, you were starting to recruit players from other states. That yeah. that was sort of important, especially for the Hawthorne team. They they got a, several players um, that came through to really either supplemental players or superstars. Johnny Platten would be a good example. Tony Hall, Judge, yeah. right? Well, Ben Allen was one. Ben Allen, from the Dockers, and Shane Crawford finished up being coming from from uh, from Finlay, New South Wales. Um, he could have quite easily been a Swans player, but they they presume not to pick him, so, uh, you know, and, and it's just a, uh, you know, I, I mean, in relation to Shane Crawford, when I, when I, at that particular time, um, Alan Jeans, who was a coach, said to me, uh, we've got to find someone who can help Johnny Platten, and Johnny Platten was a superstar, and he was a rover, uh, which meant he, you know, he was always on the ball, he had fantastic stamina, he hardly ever rested, hardly, uh, you know, went off the ball. And um, he said to me, we've got to find someone we can, who can give him a rest for five or ten minutes each quarter. Um, and, you know, so that, that's part of the job. So we finished up. We, you know, I um, had seen Shane Crawford play at Assumption College in Kilmore. And, he, and he, sort of, he sort of filled that role a bit. You know, he would he could, uh, get to find the football and do things with it. Um, and so we, we finished up drafting him. And uh, he turned out to be a superstar. So it's that's not what I, you know. That wasn't the original theory about draft and Shane Crawford was to be a superstar. But he just uh, for the first night he got to Hawthorne, he um, they always used to have a the first night of training. They always used to have a uh, three kilometre run, and uh, it was it was known that um, two players, Andy Gowers and Darren Pritchard, would be. You know, the first two in those every time because they were just, you know, they were just sort of super fit guys and good players. But the night they ran with Crawford, he just sat behind them for uh, 
for you know whatever the twelve laps or something. He sat behind him for ten, and then he left him for dead for the last two, and he won easy. So it was quite evident early on that he was going to be a really good player for him. Okay. Now I, I had a couple questions here that uh, as before you came on, Tony, I was telling your dad I reached out on uh, the BigFooty.com website and said I was going to that that your dad was going to be on, and if they had any questions they wanted to ask him, and a couple of people responded. And, one of the I told you about the one that said, you know, how was the second premier? Yeah, um, second premiership there, which I. I'll be twenty twenty one. That's yes, uh, that's the I'm, one. I'm, yes, exactly. Yeah, there you go. This is um, the perfect year. The, the first one was, uh, which player, uh, which player that the Hawks recruited at the uh, at the time where you were the uh, um, recruiting manager took the most work to bring across and, and how tough was it to get players to let go of their loyalties during that era when the AFL, VFL was a still kind of a semi-professional sport? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one, Craig. Um, I wish I could take credit for it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it was, it probably wasn't all particularly hard at that stage because Hawthorne were a really, really good side. Mm -hmm. So they weren't, they weren't coming across to play with the side that was in the middle of the ladder or, you know, maybe towards the bottom of the ladder, which, and I mean, I had, I had a couple of, of players that, that I, you know, that I spoke to about recruiting who said, if you recruit me, I won't come. Um, and never came anywhere in Victoria in the end. They just didn't want to come. But then about the hard, hardest might've been, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the hardest might've been a uh, guy named, uh, what's his name? Uh, Robin, um, yeah, oh, his dad was what's his first name? Um, John and uh, Matthew, Matthew, right? Matthew Robin, he was probably the hardest. Now, his father played football in South Australia and was a superstar. And okay. you know, he's a life member and he's a life member, he's a legend in the AFL now and all that sort of thing. Or well, he's a member of the AFL, uh. Club and all the rest of it sort of thing, yeah. And um, he he never came. He was they they tried for years and years and years and years to get um, him to come uh, Barry to come over and play AFL football, but he never did. Um, and of course, he had two he had two boys, Matthew and John, who uh, you know who were capable of playing league football. And and I sort of had spoken to him on many occasions and. Um, about coming over and they said, oh, you know, this and that, and they wanted this and they wanted that, they want to make sure this was right and that was right. And so this went on and on and on and on. But in the end, he came um, and, and he played, uh, I don't know, he played one year or two years, but in the 19, it must have been the 90, 91 grand final side, he was the 21st man. So he was a bit upset about that and he left the next year. And he, But his brother came over and played a few years after that, but he probably the hardest. Um, was Darren Jarman? Were you part of Darren? Darren he wasn't so hard, Darren. He, his story was was a bit different. He um, at the time that before he came, um, going back once again to AFL lists, uh, clubs were able to sign players on their list, but when it came to uh, I'm not sure what the year was now. Might have been '86 when, when, uh, when Adelaide came into the league. Any any Adelaide player that was on a list 
the club who was listed was on had to sign him or he became free player. Okay. And I rem- and I remember going to and Hawthorne had spoken to. He was on particularly at that stage. He was on the Brisbane line, or Brisbane Bears list, I think it was, at that particular stage. And uh, he, he he knew he was. They knew he wasn't going to play with the Brisbane Bears, so they dropped him off the list. So he became a free agent. But what happened on the day that he became a free agent? He'd spoken to Adelaide, and the Adelaide the Adelaide Crows had uh, promised him. Um, certain things that they would do for him and all the rest of it, and he signed with them. But he wasn't a free agent, even though Melbourne and um, Brisbane Bears had dropped him off the list. He wasn't a free agent until midnight on a particular day, and then they became free agents. And I, we'd spoken, also spoken to him on that night, and he rang them and told them that he had signed, he signed with. The LA Crows because they promised him this, that, and everything else. So when when I get to work the next day, the, the, um, the CEO of Hawthorne at that particular John Lawrence come and said, "Look, we've missed out on Darren Jarman because he signed he signed with um, the Adelaide Crows." And uh, and I said to him, "When did he sign with the Adelaide Crows?" He said, "I oh, signed with them last night." I said, "Well, he couldn't sign with the Adelaide Crows last night because he's still a Brisbane Bears player." So they, you know, that thing is not valid. So you better get back on the phone now and see if you can sign him now. And that's basically what happened. They got back on the phone and spoke to him. And I, I'm not sure what they promised him. They might have promised him the Glenfrey Oval or something. I don't know what they promised him. But uh, anyhow, he finished up coming to Hawthorne. So, uh, anyway. Well, that's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty small oval, I heard. Yeah. It is a small <laughs> oval, yeah. But Craig, do yourself a favor and uh, check out Darren Jarman. Darren Jarman highlights. Uh, well, he ended up going back to Adelaide and won a flag there. So he I mean, he's not back in Adelaide. Yeah. yeah, everyone won in the end. You know. Yeah, they did. But that was him. He was. He was hard to. Yeah, he was. You say he might have been hard to get, but. Okay. Uh, it was a, uh, I don't know that that story is very well known to be to be truthful. Probably not, but anyhow, we don't tell anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that. Well, it's gonna be. You might have a couple <laughs> people listening to it now. Now, this is this is a slightly more. This is a bigger question in terms of the bulk of what's here. Uh, it says in 1988, the Hawks had the the number one overall pick after trading out Russo. Harding and Hanley to the Saints, and they took Alex McDonald. This person said they were interested to hear if the club were keen on McDonald from a long way out, and who else they were seriously seriously considering with the pick, because they said they remembered hearing from Yabby that McDonald was a good fit for the family club, which I found interesting, and whether he was rated in term best in terms of talent. He was at that time, okay. at that particular time. Yeah. Okay. He was a player they were looking at. Um, yeah, Yabby and I had spoken to him a couple of times, went up to – he lived in Ballarat. Uh, had spoken to him a few times and, uh, yeah, he looked to be a really good – he looked to be – he, I mean, he played 100 games or something, but, I mean, Alex probably himself would say he didn't turn out to be the player they th- we thought he might be, but that's, that's the way it goes. Okay, okay. Now, this is this is the question that you and I talked about off air. If that's okay that okay. I asked this, is this one okay to, to bring up here? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about this one before before we started recording here, um, and this this came from somebody else again that was uh, on the BigFooty.com website. It said, 
Uh, could you describe the club's reaction and in particular uh, Alan Joyce's reaction, who was the coach and was also a police officer, um, to the sniffing drugs accusation that was levied at them by Kevin Sheedy in 1984? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, I can remember that, remember that happening. Um, I think the reaction of the footy club was that it was a Kevin Sheedy ploy because they were playing each, I think they played, they played off in the grand final that year. Um, he had all sorts of, uh, he had all sorts of things that he liked to bring up and, and put against teams. And that was just his, his way of trying to upset the thing. But from the football club's point of view, um, I don't think that Alan Jeans, Alan Jeans wouldn't have taken any notice of that whatsoever. He would have, um, you know, he would have uh, just fobbed it off and said, look, it's just one of his little gimmicks. He's trying to play them and he still tries to do them today. But, <laughs> uh, you know, just on that sort of thing. But he might look in my time in playing football and in, and being involved at Hawthorne. That I have never seen at any seen anything at all about drugs in footy clubs. Um, yeah. I don't know what players do away from football clubs. You know, in their own spare time. But in terms of being at a footy club, I've never ever seen any of that ever ever happen. I've never been brought to my notice. Okay. Now. Let's say that uh, the 2021 season wraps up here. And I've got these are not really questions that are specific to to Hawthorne or to Melbourne here, but the 2021 season wraps up, and uh, Gil McLaughlin reaches out to you and says, "I'm going to let you change one law of the game. What are you changing, or what are you bringing in, or what are you doing differently?" <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um... Jeez, you should have asked me that one earlier. <laughs> well, hey, let me ask you a question. You were in the game. That you were in the game when kicking the ball out on the full was not was a throw-in, right? And at some point during your career, that became out on the full, and the other team got the ball, right? There was some. Do you remember when that happened? Was that in the sixties? <laughs> no, 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 I don't think it was in while I was playing. Oh, so it's in the set later, maybe in the seventies. So, what do you think of like last touch? Let me ask you that one. You know, um, that no, sort of thing. No, As a defender, you—that's your boundary line's your friend. Yeah, but I, but I'm happy. I'm happy with that. Um, for that thing out in the full, and the other mob get it, and the other thing, and, you know, because I think, and um, you know, even you know, the ball going out of bounds and umpires throwing a bang, and that's part of the game and it's what you got to do. And, uh, uh, you, you hate it when they drop the ball and they don't pay that. That's usually the one. <laughs> <laughs> My sister with some colour commentary, everybody. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. Well, that's, that happens in their football. But, uh, yeah. Um, look, look I, I just think that the game in some ways is over-umpired. I mean, they've got three umpires now and they've got all these rules about deliberately kicking the ball out of bounds and all this sort of thing. I mean, there's just too many, there's just too many rules, hairy-fairy rules in the game now. And, uh, okay. you know, the same with, with umpiring decisions in regards to goals behind some points. You've got a goal umpire there. He sees it. Whatever he sees, that's what you pay it. You don't finish up with a, um, with a video, you know, of the of the game for the next 20, 30 you know, thirty seconds or so, 
on when it was a point, a goal was touched, it wasn't touched, it went over the line, didn't go over the line. That's what the umpire's there for and gets paid for. So uh, you win them and you lose them. Some you're going to win, some you're going to lose. Okay, okay. Because you wouldn't want it to cost somebody that sort of thing. You wouldn't that sort of decision. You wouldn't want a club to lose a grand final because of it. Right, right. That's true. That's true. Or keep them out of finals to begin with. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, any any insight that you have on how the AFL can resolve or should they resolve the issue with getting a club in Tasmania? Not possible. So that you don't think there's going to be one there? Well, I think the only way you'll get a team, in my opinion, the only way you'll get a team in Tasmania is one of the teams, their current sides, relocate there. Okay. Because we just don't have the players. There's not the volume of players, you know, as you were saying before about, you know, the girls' situation. They bring in Mm -hmm. 14, they've got to bring in another, you know, 120 people. You've got to find 120 people. This way, you're going to find another 40 guys that are going to be on, on, a, on the list. Once again, it just devalues the standard of the game. Okay. If a team, team relocates there, which they're probably never going to do, then, um, you know, I mean, they should, have, they should have answered this question 20 years ago when they just gave, they should have said between this 10-year period, the worst performed team in the, in the AFL were probably going to be relocated to Tasmania. I'm giving you 10 years' notice. So okay, that's, that's going fair. To happen if you want to put them there, because what happens now is that Tasmania don't produce the footballers, the number of footballers that they used to in the past. They don't, because their football standard isn't all that good. So there's no, you know, once again, if you bring a, you bring a side into Tassie, it becomes a 19 side, it becomes a buy. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, I mean, yeah, it just messes the game up too much. Okay, that's that's a so if if you're going to send a team down there and relocate them, who are you sending <laughs> there? Collingwood. I don't know the answer to that one, Craig. Yeah, I don't think okay. he wants to answer that. Okay, one. that's that's fair enough. That's, that's fair why enough. We've got an AFL commission. That's okay. Now I I have some. Uh, I have some um, couple questions that are not necessarily directed, you know, specifically about footy. But I, I've been asking this question, these couple of questions, to everybody I've been interviewing recently. So, what would we call your autobiography? If you were writing a book about yourself, or one was written about yourself, what would it be titled? Oh, yes, um, the boy from nowhere. <laughs> Okay. I came, I came okay. from nowhere. I came from nowhere to Melbourne. Melbourne didn't even know I existed until I walked in the door. There you go. Back in those days, I, back in those days, I played in a football. I played junior footy. I played in the junior team, but ninety-nine percent of the kids were zoned to Richmond, and the guy who coached us was a Richmond recruiting officer. So you know, and I didn't at the time. I didn't know that because I asked him if I could go down and you know, try in a Richmond, he said, no, you don't live in our zone. So I was, you know, I was the only player in our team that was in Melbourne zone. The rest of them were in Richmond zone. Ah. So, and, and Melbourne had never come to see, see me play. I'm sure they hadn't because they never contacted me. So I came out of nowhere. Wow. That is very cool. Great answer. Okay, so 
this is this has been this has been a uh, this has been a question I've gotten some interesting answers to, to as well. Let's say that you you have just walked into a room with all of the people that you have ever known in your life. Who are you looking for? Who are you going to find? My wife. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, let's have her leave the room. Can you answer the question? <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs> okay. That's that's fair. That's fair enough. That's that's fair enough. Yes. Well, let's let's try this then. Let's say she came. She let's say she came into the room. Hang on. With you. We're, we're a little caveat here. She came into the room with you. Who are you looking for? <laughs> if you if you say your mother-in-law, we're gonna end the interview right now. <laughs> uh, I live with. Are you talking about sporting people? Or are you talking well, about anybody? Like, you know, it could be. I gotta look at then. I gotta look for my kids, don't I? Well, nah, no, don't Tony you. won't be there, so I can look for the other three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're all hawk supporters, though. No, that's okay. I know. I'm I'm giving you a hard time there. I'm giving you a hard time. Oh, yeah. there. Okay. Okay. Now, this question is: the family members are exempt because they're already going to be here. Okay. You get to invite five people from history. Maybe somebody you worked with. Maybe somebody who you were you admired throughout history to a dinner party. Who are you inviting? You're talking about not about my family. Yeah. Your fam your family's already there. They're already sitting at the table. They've got their forks in their hands. They're ready to go. What about my parents? Okay, you you can invite them. That's fine. Uh, my dad. Okay. Alan James. Okay. Norm Smith. Uh, they're three of the most influential I have in my life. Um, I think you're going to get two more. Probably my, first boss, probably my first boss, Kevin Jackson. He was my first boss, and he was fantastic for me. He helped me help do a lot of things. Okay. Who? Oh, who Bill, yeah, Bill Cow. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I love it. Oh, that's a sticker. That's, that's almost an answer as bad as the mother-in-law one would have been. <laughs> 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 he likes the jaw. Uh, well, he was pretty good too, but uh, yeah. I can see her anytime. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, uh, last couple things here before we wrap up. Now, Tony, I have to ask you, because I'm not actually asked you a, a specific question here tonight, but no. what is your... I'm not that interesting. Okay. That's okay. That's all. That's fine. What is your greatest memory of your dad's involvement in footy? What's the thing that sticks out to you that you go... I'm proud that guy's my dad. Ooh. Do I, I didn't have to be alive for this, right? Well, I mean, okay. it could be something that you know about. I mean, it's, you, know, it, you could have read about You may not have had to have been there or witnessed it. but Well, I think it's two things. One, it's clearly breaking into a premiership, like, era team. You know, this is, these are, this is cracking the Richmond squad or the Hawthorne Mm -hmm. You know, in their in their prime. I mean, at, as an as a nineteen year old, that's that's pretty cool. Um, I think though, my fondest memory is in my formative years, in my late teen years. He was sort of the local guy. You know, as he described earlier, as being the country development officer for Hawthorne. 
so that sort of came with um, – because I wasn't around when he played. So right. um, he was known in, in my world, my football circle, for my friends as Frank Davis, and he was – you know, work for Hawthorne. And so that was the, you know, from a, from a, my, my memory, um, you know, and everything he did, he described as he helped uh, our school and he'd bring players and, um, and just to see, and then, and then the story we won't get into tonight, but when I walked into the kitchen at our house and the biggest man in the world sitting there, John Kolb from the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, <laughs> And I went, wow, what's this? You know, how cool is that, right? Who would have – we have an NFL player in our house. Did they um, bring him over to the house because you hadn't done your homework? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no. So those two things for me. Okay. That's great. That's great. Now, is there anything uh, at all footy-related that maybe you have never told him before? Because you, you heard something tonight from him that you hadn't heard before. Is there anything that, that that maybe he doesn't know about you with regards to footy that he might go, that's interesting? Um, that's a tough one. I think there was a – I have a memory of a conversation he and I had. He may not remember that. But, um, you know, for me, playing footy that was fun. Too. It was fun. Um, but – you know, and I played in under nineteens for a little bit uh, at Hawthorne, and I was okay. I wasn't great, but I was okay player. But I knew I wasn't gonna. It wasn't gonna be something I could would commit. You need a commitment, right? Or for mm-hmm. the training, the you know, it, it's a you know, um, I wasn't that good that I could sort of get away with it. So I remember driving the training one night with him, and I just said something to the effect of. You know, did you love this? Did you love the training? Did you love the, you know, the, that aspect of the game? And he said he did, you know, and I knew that I didn't, you know, uh-huh. and it was sort of, for me, sort of the permission to know that it, it takes some commitment to, okay. to make it at the, at the AFL level. So it was that a bit of advice that sort of, it was almost like, it's okay. You don't have to, you know, this, you got to love it. If you don't, it's okay. It's not, yeah. you know, there was never pressure to, and my brother, you know, I would think he would feel the same way, um, okay. you know, to follow the footsteps. Okay. And that was very, that was cool. That is, that's great. Yeah. That's, uh, so Frank, any, anything uh, before we wrap up here, sir? Because I think we've, you know, we've taken up quite a bit of your afternoon here. That's okay. I enjoyed, okay. The, uh, enjoyed the chat. I have one last question. I, I did, was one question I, I, I did want to ask. Who was the best player you played on? Um, I, I had what's that? Yeah, Rumor has it he was a beauty. He was yeah. a beauty. <laughs> He's a beauty in my time. Yeah. I didn't particularly I didn't particularly want to play on him, but they yeah. told me you had to play on him. I was a bit lucky because he, he only kicked seven goals on me. Uh, <laughs> he used to kick, he, and he used to kick fourteen on everyone else. Wow. <laughs> That's Wow, that's uh, it, so you you cut you cut his output in half then. That's good. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's he, he would he would have done that to a lot of people, but he would no, he was just a player who could read the game and read where the ball was going before it went there. And so he was always sort of a step ahead of you. So that was you know That was an easy answer. To, at least he at least he'd take me to the football, but I didn't always get it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Well, gentlemen, 
I do want to uh, thank you for, for taking time out of your evening and your afternoon and sitting down. This has been a, a delightful conversation. I, I've learned a lot about the behind-the-scenes aspect of the game. I'm, you know, I love digging into the history of the game as well and learning a little bit about, about that as well. And I just it's, it's, it's great to see and be able to talk with people who helped to build something that became as successful as, as the Hawks through the 1980s. Um, you know, and that, you know, that club had another resurgence that again, just in the last 15 years or so, um, even actually a little sooner, more recent than that with, uh, uh, with several premierships there as well. But it, it's been an absolute joy to talk with both of you, Tony. We talk quite a bit, but Frank, I thank you very much for coming on, sir. Not a problem, Greg. I enjoyed the, uh, enjoyed the chat. Any time at all. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank a friend of the podcast, Tony Davis, and his dad, Frank Davis, for sitting down with me today. Gentlemen, an absolute pleasure. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day. Thanks so much, Tony. Thanks for No worries. Good to go, Dees. All right. A huge thanks to Frank and Tony Davis. This was one heck of a fun interview to do. A lot of, dis lot of great discussion. Like I said, I get to talk with Tony quite frequently. Uh, two terrific gentlemen. Frank, I truly appreciate you taking time out of your day. That was a lot of fun. Uh, it was it was really neat as I'm sitting there talking to him, seeing his Guernsey up on the uh, mounted on the wall over his right shoulder. It was it was just it was just an absolutely delightful conversation. Now, if you again have a, an idea for a show topic or somebody you think would be a, a great guest, feel free to reach out to me by voicemail on the uh, website. You can shoot me an email at a yank on the footy at gmail.com. You could even add something like that on the survey that I mentioned as well, okay? Like I said, you can also shoot me a note, uh, a message on Facebook or a DM on Twitter. I always check those several times a day. And you can always find all of the episodes for the podcast at yankonthefooty.com as well as your favorite podcast provider. They do show up on my website as well if you want to listen to them there. And there are links for you to subscribe to the show on about eight or nine different hosting sites. So if you if you like the show and you want to go ahead and click on a subscription there, you can go ahead and listen to it right on that site. I do hope that you'll consider giving me a review on Apple Podcasts or even on my website. There's a spot for you to do that there. It lets me share information then with uh, prospective listeners and let them see that, uh, that this might be a show worth their while that they should consider checking out. And it's it's... It's been a big help. You know, some, some of you have been very kind with your words. Um, haven't had a lot of reviews, to be completely honest, but those of you who have taken the time to, to drop a review there, I truly appreciate it. And it's, 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 to me, it's, it's a huge help because it lets me know what I'm doing well. The words are humbling as well. because I, 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 And some of the responses that I've gotten back in this survey have been very humbling as well. Now, there's been some, some great constructive criticism, because that's one of the things that I'm asking, is asking, what could I do better? Or what could I do differently? And this isn't necessarily to be, you know, an affirmation, hey, pat my back because I'm doing this podcast. Now, that's, I'd like to know that if I'm doing a good job, but I'd also like to know what you think I could do differently and I could do better. So I want to hear that. So it's, it's something that I hope you'll take two or three minutes and, and fill out. Uh, there's a spot there where you can leave your email if you want to, and I can um, get in touch with you if you want to, you know, chat via Zoom about maybe some suggestions that you have or 
maybe if you haven't signed up on the subscription list, if you'd like to get on there that way, I can add you on. I haven't said on there that I'm going to do that from that point, so I probably won't. So if you want to subscribe, I would say probably do that through my website, okay? That would be the best way to do it because I didn't collect emails on the, the survey site because I didn't want to f didn't want people to feel that it was going to be a way where I was going to try to coerce you into sharing your email address with me because that's not what I'm wanting to do here. If you want to get on the, the mailing list, there's a spot to do that on my website, okay? I mean, I'll see your email on the other thing, but I won't add you to the email list unless you specifically tell me that you want to do that. Okay, so again, folks, I do appreciate you uh, checking it out. This was a fantastic, fun interview. I've got a couple great ones coming here in the next uh, week, week and a half. I sat down this past week with uh, Kim Harrison, who I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, who is, uh, for those of you in North America, you might know him as Mick Aussie from MickAussie.tv. He's also on uh, several radio and television programs on the East Coast of the United States and Canada, talking about the NFL, the CFL, Aussie rules, and just is an absolutely hilarious gentleman. Uh, pretty good footy player in his own right, won the best and fairest a few times when he was playing back in the... Uh, in the Sandful back in the 1980s. So a lot of fun. Looking forward to bringing that discussion with you or to you pretty soon. And those of you who may be up on Facebook, I did sit down uh, yesterday to talk with uh, a gentleman by the name of Nick Costa, who is a Magpie supporter, who was one of the first people to really welcome me into um, the online discussion boards with regards to the AFL uh, when I first got involved with it about five years ago. And, you know, he gives me a hard time that I'm not a Magpie supporter, but it's it's all in fun. Uh, it was a great discussion. He's currently, as, as you'll hear in this episode, he's currently in quarantine right now, having just arrived back from a trip in the United States. So we talked a little bit about how, he ex how his times were in the U.S., uh, how he's enjoying... Um, his time in quarantine, which he's using it productively. So looking forward to getting that one to you here very well as well. So folks, I want to thank you for listening because deep down, you know, we're fans of our clubs, but we're fans of a game that we all love and that's footy. Those of you who are in New South Wales, we're thinking about you. I know the lockdowns are, are not ending anytime soon. You know, those of you who are in Victoria, I think you have some empathy for your, your neighbors to the north there. Uh, Queensland, it sounds like things are opening up a little bit for you as well. Um, but look out for each other. You know, don't be afraid to reach out and talk to a friend that's in Sydney or in the, the area surrounding Sydney because, uh, you know, they're dealing with some, some things that, that they're not exactly thrilled about dealing with right now. And some of you have some practical experience with it. So take care of each other. Look out, look out for one another. Orville, I'm thinking about you, man. I'm praying for you. It's a real tough situation you're having to deal with right now. And uh, I am thinking about you and keep Orville Gibson in your thoughts, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but folks, I do thank you for listening. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, may your dribble kick Never hit the post. And until next time, I will catch you later.
This has been episode number 97 of A Yank on the Footy. Don't forget that you can reach me at yank underscore on on Twitter or to the yank on the footy at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at a yank on the footy. You can also find my uh, YouTube channel. Just search out my name, Craig Wessels. And again, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. And please consider sharing the podcast with your friends and family out on your social media. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>